Vishnupad Paramhamsa Parivraja Dasharash Sattarasu Shimad Esi Bhaktivanta Swami Srila Prabhupada Ki Ananta Korta Vaishnava Vrindaki All glories to the assembled devotees All glories to the assembled devotees All glories to the assembled devotees All glories to Shishi Guru and Gauranga All glories to Srila Prabhupada Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Today is Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. And we're re- reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, entitled Creation, Chapter 5, Narada's Instructions on Srimad Bhagavatam for Vyasadev, Text 15. Jugupsitam Dharma Krita Nushastata. Vabhava Raktasya Mahan Vyakti Krama Yadvakyato Dharma Iti Taras Chito Namanyatetasya Nivraram Jana Jugap Jugup Sitam Dharma Krita Nushashataha Swabhava Raktasya Mahan Vyaktikarama Yadvakyato Dharma Ititara Sito Namanyatetasya Nivaranam Jana Jugapsitam, verily condemned, Dharmakrite, for the matter of religion, Anusha Sataha, instruction, Swabhava, 
Rektasya, naturally inclined. Mahan, great. Vyatikrama, unreasonable. Yat Vakyata, under whose instruction? Dharma, religion. Iti, it is thus. Itara, the people in general. Sita, fixed. Na, do not. Manyate, think. Tasya, of that. Nivaranam, prohibition. Jana, they. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. The people in general are naturally inclined to enjoy, and you have encouraged them in that way in the name of religion. This is verily condemned, and it is quite unreasonable. Because they are guided under your instructions, they will accept such activities in the name of religion and will hardly care for prohibitions. Purport. Srila Vyasadeva's compilation of different Vedic literatures on the basis of regulated performances of fruitive activities as depicted in the Mahabharata and other literature is condemned herewith by Srila Narada. The human beings, by long material association, life after life, have a natural inclination by practice to endeavor to lord it over material energy. They have no sense of the responsibility of human life. This human form of life is a chance to get out of the clutches of illusory matter. The Vedas are meant for going back to Godhead, going back home. To revolve in the cycle of transmigration in a series of lives numbering 8,400,000 is an imprisoned life for the condemned conditioned souls. The human form of life is a chance to get out of this imprisoned life, and as such, the only occupation of the human being is to reestablish his lost relationship with God. Under the circumstances, one should never be encouraged in making a plan for sense enjoyment in the name of religious functions. Such diversion of the human energy results in a misguided civilization. Srila Vyasadeva is the authority in Vedic explanations in the Mahabharata etc. And his encouragement and sense enjoyment in some form or other is a great barrier for spiritual advancement because the people in general will not agree to renounce material activities which hold them in material bondage. At a certain stage of human civilization, when such material activities in the name of religion as sacrificing animals in the name of yagna were too much rampant, the Lord incarnated himself as Buddha and decried the authority of the Vedas in order to stop animal sacrifice in the name of religion. This was foreseen by Narada, and therefore he condemned such literatures. The flesh eaters still continue to perform animal sacrifice before some demigod or goddess in the name of religion because in some of the Vedic literatures such regulated sacrifices are recommended. They are so recommended to discourage flesh-eating, but gradually the purpose of such religious activities is forgotten and the slaughterhouse becomes prominent. 
This is because foolish materialistic men do not care to listen to others who are actually in a position to explain the Vedic rites. In the Vedas, it is distinctly said that the perfection of life is never to be attained either by voluminous work or by accumulation of wealth or even by increasing the population. But it is so attained only by renunciation. The materialistic men do not care to listen to such injunctions. According to them, the so-called renounced order of life is meant for those who are unable to earn their livelihood because of some corporal defects or for persons who have failed to achieve prosperity in family life. In histories like the Mahabharata, of course, there are topics on transcendental subjects along with material topics. The Bhagavad Gita is there in the Mahabharata. The whole idea of the Mahabharata culminates in the ultimate instructions of the Bhagavad Gita that one should relinquish all other engagements and should engage oneself solely and fully in surrendering unto the lotus feet of Lord Sri Krishna. But men with materialistic tendencies are more attracted to the politics, economics, and philanthropic activities mentioned in the Mahabharata. Then to the principal topic, namely the Bhagavad Gita. This compromising spirit of Vyasadeva is directly condemned by Narada, who advises him to directly proclaim that the prime necessity of human life is to realize one's eternal relation with the Lord, and this surrender unto him without delay. A patient suffering from a particular type of malady is almost always inclined to accept eatables which are forbidden for him. The expert physician does not make any compromise with the patient by allowing him to take partially what he should not at all take. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is also said that a man attached to fruit of work should not be discouraged from his occupation, for gradually he may be elevated to the position of self-realization. This is sometimes applicable for those who are only dry, empiric philosophers without spiritualization. But those who are in the devotional line need not be always so advised. Omagyana Tibananda Shajana Jana Shalakaya Chakshurumitam Jaina Tasmai Shri Guru Namaha. I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jena Putsale Swayam Rupakada Mayam Tatadhitsatvantikam. When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who has established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha Kalpatarubhyasya Kripasandubhyavacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnava devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadha Shri Vasari Gauravaktavrinda I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Vastakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So, I want to say previously in Srimad Bhagavatam class, 
Um, we've been discussing Narada Muni's instructions to Vyasadev, and if we review what's happened before, Vyasadev has written all of, or he's compiled all of the Vedas. He, he split them into four. And um, he's compiled the 18 Puranas, which includes the Mahabharata, the Vedanta Sutras, and the Upanishads. And they all describe how to be successful in religiosity, economic development, sense gratification, and salvation. But he still, still felt incomplete, unsatisfied. Remember in um, Srimad Bhagavatam 1.4.31, he says, This may be because I did not specifically point out the devotional service of the Lord, which is dear both to perfect beings and to the infallible Lord. So, we're still continuing on with these instructions of including Krishna in um, and our connection to Krishna in Vyasadeva's writings. So Narada Muni is instructing him, you know, why this is so important. And in today's verse, he's quite direct and to the point. You know, he's very uncompromising. He's saying that. What does he say? He says, You have encouraged them in the name of religion, and this is condemned and unreasonable. So as a result, they'll, in the name of religion, do so many things that, um, you know, may not be for in their best interest. And when we read through the purport, Prabhupada explains that we have this natural tendency to, he says, lord it over. It's a very unique phrase. I think I've only heard Prabhupada and his followers say that. What it means is to want to be in control, to um, have power over everything. And all of us, in one way or another, want to be in control. We may think, oh, no, not me. I don't like to be in control. But just think about any kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be overt, like overt interests of, of being in control, of being in power, things like, you know, having leadership position, uh, running for office, president, things like that. But even in small ways, right? And our, um, as a parent, we want to control our children and make sure that they stay safe, but we want to actually control them, like how they behave. We feel like, oh, they should behave like this and they should do this. Um, even in small ways, you know, if you're, um, if you ever find yourself getting upset over a situation, if you stop and think about it, it's because you had no control over that situation. Things did not go as planned. It wasn't what you expected. These kinds of things are small indications that we like to be in control, like that we want that kind of power. So Prabhupada is saying that we have this natural propensity. We don't need to learn how to be in control. We already have this propensity. So really, when we do that, we're just um, learning further how to get ourselves entangled in this material uh, world. Because when we are looking at wanting to be in control, what is it that we're seeking? What is it that we want out of gaining control is some type of sense gratification, some type of pleasure, um, some type of happiness. We think, you know, we discussed this last time that, oh, if only I had 
this much money or this many cars or this many jewels or this many clothes or shoes, I'll be happy. This is, you know, that's just a sm- another small way of wanting to be in control. And um, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says in 327, it says, The spirit soul, bewildered by the influence of false ego, thinks himself the doer of activities that are in actuality carried out by the three modes of material nature. This says, under the influence of false ego. So what is false ego? A false ego is this identification with our body thinking that we are this body, and that's all there is to ourselves, to our life, and not realizing that we are spirit souls, that we are occupying this body. This body is just the dress for this lifetime. But we get so caught up with this body and, you know, um, how old am I? How do I look? What clothes do I wear? Um... Am I too fat? Am I too skinny? Am I, you know, what's going on? We identify with these things. You know, I know I do. I'm guilty of spending a lot of time in the mirror, you know, getting ready, um, putting makeup on, you know, making sure that this body is presentable. And these are all things of the false ego. It's identifying our true selves with the material body. And because we identify so strongly with this body, when something happens to this body, we take it personally. We feel, you know, I've seen, I've, I've seen people, I've talked to people that they take it personally when it rains. Like, oh my God, how can this happen to me? I have to go out in this weather, you know, and I just laugh and I think, okay, as if the rain is just for you so that you can be miserable. Um, so and that's just a very overt way of feeling that kind of pain. But really, any time, you know, it's like, oh, this is happening, and because of this, I feel bad, or I feel good, or, you know, so we really, like, depend on things that are going on outside, out external to us, to how we feel. And we discussed last time that, uh, last week, that... Um, you know, this external, we have three types of material miseries caused by nature, caused by other people, and caused by our mind. And we tend to take these things very personally, right? If somebody says something to us or insults us in any way, even if they didn't mean to, we take it so personally. And when we learn to not identify with our false ego, we learn to not take things so personally. That whatever's happening around us is not really happening to us. It's, it's just that. It's happening around us. And so it's learning to separate who we truly are from the physical body. Continuing on in um, 329 Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Bewildered by the modes of material nature, the ignorant fully engage themselves in material activities and become attached. This is really hard not to do, right? Because lifetime after lifetime, this is what we've been doing. We've been identifying with our body and wanting the results of the activities that we're doing. We think that we're the doer. We think that, okay, if I do this, then I will definitely get this. And if I don't get it, then I get very upset, right? For instance, um, 
you know, if you work really hard every single day um, and you put away some money, you can own a big house and, you know, have a big family and be very rich. But sometimes that doesn't always work out. Some things may happen. The money doesn't accumulate. There might be some emergencies. And so you think, well, I've done everything I'm supposed to do and I'm not getting the results. You know, there must be something wrong. Um, with me or there must be something wrong with the system and then we get very angry and we get very upset or depressed because the results are not what we want they're not we we didn't have control over it and so we get upset it wasn't what we wanted whereas one in 328 one who is in knowledge of the absolute truth does not engage oneself in the senses and sense gratification knowing well the differences between work and devotion and work for fruit of results we again talked about this last time about working with equanimity. We do our duty because it is our duty to do it, but not really remaining attached to the results. So, you know, for instance, when I, and I brought this example up before, um, when I talk to patients as a doctor, you know, I, I want them to make changes in their lives, right, so that they can be healthier. But all I can do is is guide them. I can give them the advice. I can give them the instructions. You know, these are the foods that we can eat, and these are the foods to avoid to have imp- improvement in health. These are the activities that we can do. We want to sleep well. We want to drink plenty of water throughout the day. We want to exercise. We want to manage our stress. But whether or not the patient does it, that's I really have no control over that. I've done my part by giving them the instruction and you know, I, I, I um, have to learn to feel satisfied with that, right? Because the other side of it, it's like, oh, my God, I've been telling you all of this, and why aren't you just listening to me? Again, that's the false ego. That's that wanting to be in control. Like, you know, just listen to me because I know what I'm talking about, right? Again, that's ego because I'm presuming that I know what's going on with the other person, um, and so as self-realized souls, we know that we're not this body. We know that who we truly are are eternal servants of Krishna. We're, um, we, we mentioned this phrase because it is actually our true nature is eternal, full of knowledge, and full of bliss. And when we think about this body, one, it's not eternal. It has an expiration date. We all do. Um, you know, it's not really full of bliss. I mean, there's so many aches and pains with this body. There's so much misery. Um, full of knowledge. Last week we talked about, you know, we know what we know. We kind of know what we don't know. But there's a lot that we don't know that we don't know. So we're not really even full of knowledge. So when one is self-realized, we realize that we're not really the doer. We're not the controller. That Krishna is behind everything. Um, in a previous class, we discussed that Krishna is the cause of all causes, that he is the supreme controller, that because of him, everything is going the way it's going. So even if we have some skill or talent, it's because it comes from Krishna. And so whatever we do, we do it as a result, as an offering to Krishna. We do it um, for Krishna, and we realize that whatever comes of it is also Krishna's mercy. It's the result of whatever Krishna deems appropriate for that moment. So in 
Narada Muni admonishes Vyasadeva for not addressing this very crucial point that all of the, this knowledge is just to bring us to our true relationship with Krishna, our true um, position. And, you know, it's touched upon in the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of the Mahabharata. And even the Mahabharata, it talks a lot about these concepts. If we look at how Arjuna and Yudhisthira and the Pandavas lived their lives, it was very much along the lines of the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita and remaining connected to, to God, to Krishna. But the Mahabharata is also full of political intrigue and drama and you know, I mean, the Game of Thrones has nothing on the Mahabharata, you know. It's like, um, you think the Game of Thrones had a lot of intrigue and was interesting and twists and turns. The Mahabharata has even more, and it's very complex, and it's just um, so interesting. And we see, you know, all these, all the opulences, and we see all these um, successes, and so we may think, oh, that's what we want, and we may take that as the the end result of what we're reading about. This is the, the take-home message. So Narada Muni is saying that you didn't stress this point enough that Krishna is the end-all, be-all of everything. And really, the all knowledge is to connect us back to our eternal position. The Vedas do um, address religiosity and engaging in worship. And Prabhupada says that this is good except for that um, people attend religious functions, they go to church, they go to temple, so that they can gain something, so that they can get some material benefit. So they're not really doing it to um, reconnect with Krishna. Or if they are, they're doing, even if they're trying to reconnect with Krishna, they're doing it for their own benefit. right? So then we tend to treat God as our waiter. right? So like, oh, um, Krishna, can I have uh, today, can I get a, a big plate of fame and fortune and on the side, can I get some beauty? And, you know, so that's how we're um, dealing with Krishna. That's what we do. We come in front of the deities or in church and we may pray, you know, please um, bless me with food, um, a roof over the, our, over my head, um, and surely we can be grateful for these things, but Krishna is so much more than just providing us with material comforts. Um, as I mentioned before, these things are nothing for Krishna. Like, he's so opulent. He's, he owns the entire universe. So giving us a little house and a place to stay and food is not really a big deal for him. So he can do that without even thinking about it, right? But when we're turning to him and we're saying, Krishna, I want to be with you. I want to please you. I want to realize who I am in relation to you. Then this is something that really piques his interest. And he starts to say, oh, okay, how can I, you know, come, how can I help you with that? Like, what can I give you? And he gives you so much more attention. He doesn't just throw, you know, material things at you. He gives you his attention, which is priceless. God's attention, can you imagine? You can't pay, you can't buy God's attention with any amount of money. And um, the only way we can do that is with our time, with giving him our energy. In Bhagavad Gita 7.16, Krishna says, 
four kinds of pious men began to render devotional service unto me. The distressed, the desire of wealth, the inquisitive, and he who is searching for knowledge of the absolute. And most of these are pursuits for oneself. Right? They're just, for distress, you want to get out of the pain. We talked about that previously of, of how we often pray to please you know, save me from this calamity. Um, suffering, please um, take me out of this suffering. So we pray to take us out of distress, or we may pray for wealth. Um, we may be inquisitive, you know, and ask questions and be seeking knowledge. And knowledge is a type of wealth. It's a type of power, right? So we want knowledge, not to know who we are, who Krishna is, but have knowledge of the world, right? Material knowledge. And then um, then we finally have the person who's searching for the absolute. And all of this, we talked about last time, this is all inferior. This is all inferior types of pursuit of happiness, of, of success, because it's temporary. So Narada Muni instructs Vyasadeva to give instructions on pure devotional service. Lord Chaitanya says in Madhya Leela 20, 122 to 125, the conditioned soul cannot revive their Krishna consciousness by their own effort. But out of causeless mercy, Lord Krishna compiled the Vedic literature and its supplements, the Puranas. The forgetful conditioned soul is educated by Krishna through the Vedic literatures, the realized spiritual master, and the super soul. Through these, one can understand the Supreme Personality of Godhead as he is, and one can understand that Lord Krishna is their eternal master and deliverer from the clutches of Maya. In this way, one can acquire real knowledge of their conditioned life and can come to, the under- come to understand how to attain liberation. So this is really key here because the way we come to a, real- a realization of who we are is one, we have to have the desire. Um, but we can't do it by our own effort. We have to have Krishna's mercy. And Krishna's mercy comes in the form of the Vedas, right? The Srimad Bhagavatam, the Puranas. It comes in the form of the spiritual master. He also comes with as the super soul within the heart. So when we are ready... The super soul within our heart has been whispering to us the whole time. Lifetime after lifetime, the super soul within our heart has been saying, Hey, are you ready? You know, are you, are you interested in learning about me? And for some reason or another in this lifetime, we may have said, Okay, yes, I'm interested. So all of a sudden, the super soul within our heart, Paramatma is his name, he floods us with information from within and without. He, um, allows us to come to the devotees, to meet with the devotees, to come to the temple, so that we can then meet our spiritual master and come in contact with um, the spiritual books, right, the, the scriptures, so that we can learn more. And within he's guiding us, within our hearts by the super soul, and externally he's guiding us through scriptures and spiritual master and advanced devotees. 
goes on to read, The Vedic literatures give information about the living entity's eternal relationship with Krishna, which is called Sambandha. The living entity's understanding of this relationship and their acting accordingly is called Abhideya. Returning home, back to Godhead, is the ultimate goal of life and is called Prayojana. Devotional service or sense activity for satisfaction of the Lord is called Abhideya because it can develop one's original love of Godhead, which is the goal of life. This goal is the religion is the living entity's topmost interest and greatest wealth. Thus one attains the platform of transcendental loving service unto the Lord. So we con- these verses conclude with um, our true position is um, our relationship with Krishna. And that is our goal of life. Prabhupada says the prime necessity of human life is to reconnect to God. So... Narada Muni is telling Vyasadev that you have to address this topmost goal. It has to be here in instruction form so that people can read it and understand that these, this knowledge is not to just succeed materially, but to reconnect with Krishna, to reconnect through pure devotional service. And what is pure devotional service? It's thinking about... Krishna acting for Krishna, doing everything that we're doing for Krishna's pleasure. Remember in Bhagavad Gita 9.27, Krishna says, Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer or give away, and whatever austerities you perform, do that as an offering to me. So Narada Muni is instructing that Vyasadeva has to stress these points. They need to be emphasized. Even though some people may not be ready to hear this and they may not want to take this path. So we we come to understand that because not everybody's ready to hear this message, that our true nature is um, servants of Krishna. Because nobody ever you know, you say servant and they think, Well, I'm not a servant. I'm a master, I'm a controller, I'm the leader. I don't serve anybody. So when we say that we're servants of Krishna, then people think, well, I don't want to be a servant. Or this may not be my path. And for them, the Vedas are a good guide because it at least allows them to live in the mode of goodness. To live um, by principles of duty, of dharma, religiosity, to succeed. So at least we're still living in the mode of goodness. We're um, keeping peace in that way. Um, but we also understand that the way the material nature is, that one way or another we have to serve. That because that is our true nature is servant, that if we don't consciously choose to serve Krishna, then by default, we're serving our senses. We're serving the material nature. And that is what we're choosing here. We're choosing to consciously serve Krishna. In Bhagavad Gita 3.29, it says, Bewildered by the modes of material nature, the ignorant fully engaged themselves in material activities and became attached. 
And it goes on to say, but the wise should not unsettle them, although these activities are inferior due to the performer's lack of knowledge. So because somebody may not know Krishna is the ultimate goal, is the topmost goal, and that being a servant of Krishna is the topmost goal, or they may not feel that that's their path, then we should encourage them to do their duty um, in a nice, pleasing way. And we should also lead by example. In 326, it says, So as to not disrupt the minds of ignorant men attached to fruitive results of prescribed duties, a learned person should not induce them to stop work. Rather, by working in the spirit of devotion, he should engage them in all sorts of activities for the gradual development of Krishna consciousness. So in this verse, Krishna is saying, you know, you work in the spirit of devotion and people will follow your example. Um, And then you can engage them in all sorts of activities and gradually they'll come to the level of Krishna consciousness. And we know that it's easier to achieve transcendental mode to come to Krishna consciousness when we're in the mode of goodness. So at the very least, you know, if people are not interested in, in learning about God and our relationship with God, we can at least help them come to the mode of goodness. And then Prabhupada ends with this example of a doctor prescribing treatment for a certain malady. And he says it may not be palatable, and the patient is more inclined to accept things that are forbidden. But the expert physician is uncompromising. Well, in reality, <laughs> in my medical practice, it's very hard to be uncompromising um, because, you know, people have so much mixed information. They have Dr. Google that they'll say, well, this person said this. And what we find is that if you are attached to certain things, you can find information that will justify that behavior, right? If you are attached to eating meat, and we know, I mean, there's, like I've mentioned before, there's tons of research that shows that meat can contribute directly to so many of our current chronic conditions like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, um, even depression and anxiety. Um, and so many of these conditions are related to, to the foods that we eat. And yet you'll find information out there that says, oh no, meat is fine. And people will attach themselves to this information because that's what they want to hear. It gives them the justification that they can continue doing what they're doing. And Prabhupada's making the same point about the Vedas, that people want to enjoy, they want, they have this propensity to, you know, uh, please their own senses, work towards their own pleasure. And so they find this information on how to do that. So they say, oh look, this is justified. This is, um, this proves that this is, a, this is the right way to act because it's in the Vedas. So, it's both. We have to be uncompromising in the information, but we also have to be compromising to help people come to this level, right? We have to get them to the level of goodness. We have to help them understand why this is important so that they can say, okay, yes, I can see why it's important. Because the truth is that if we want to have a relationship with Krishna, we have to engage in pure devotional service. There is no other way to do it. 
And how do we engage in pure devotional service? It's very simple. Right? We chant japa. We, chant, we do our mantra meditation, prescribed number of, of mantras that we chant every single day. We have certain um, rules and regulations that we follow. We want to associate with other devotees, other people that are on this path with us. We want to um, read you know, the Srimad Bhagavatam, the Bhagavad Gita, so that we can learn more. We want to uh, surrender to Krishna and his spiritual master. And that's that's a very difficult thing to comprehend. Americans, you know, as Amer- we as Americans don't want to surrender to anything. We're in control. We're in charge. You know, we're the conquerors. Um, and so to hear some that you want to surrender, that's hard to do. But we know that if we want to achieve Krishna, these are the things that we have we have to do. We must do them. Um, does that mean we have to do it all at once? Immediately today, the next hour, we have to do all of these things. Otherwise, it's lost. Right? Sometimes when we think like that, we have this all-or-nothing mentality. Either I'll do everything or I'll do nothing. Because if I'm not doing everything, what's the point? I'm not getting there. What we, wonder, what we have to understand is that it's gradual. Um, you know, I think one of the most important verses is uh, in the Bhagavad Gita that um, 625, gradually, step by step, one should become situated in trance by means of intelligence, sustained by full conviction. And thus, the mind can be fixed on the self alone and can think of nothing else. So, we have to have full conviction. So, when I have a a patient, right? Let's let's just take this example because this has come up for me before. Um, chronic pain is a big issue uh, these days, and because of that, we have this thing called the opioid crisis. And what that is is that because of chronic pain, people are taking narcotic pain medications to help alleviate their pain, and as a result, they're becoming addicted to it, dependent on it. And it has so many side effects, and it can even cause death. Part of the problem is that it only temporarily relieves the pain, and then the pain comes back. And then the person builds a tolerance to the pain medication, so they need more and higher and higher doses in order for it to be effective. Well, we've also learned that there's actually more effective ways of controlling pain than pain medications. And it's a... um, it's a combination of three different things in three different categories, which requires the patients to take part in. They have to actively do. So two of the three things they have to actively do. One is passive. The passive things for pain that a person can do is, are things like massage, acupuncture, chiropractic, some physical therapy. These are the kinds of things that are done to them, right? Like they just have to sit back and... You know, with acupuncture, the needles get punk, you know put into them, or chiropractic, the the um, chiropractor does the treatment to them. The massage therapist massages them, so it's it doesn't really require any kind of active participation. So they found that this is good, but actually even more um, sustainable and more powerful in treating pain are the active participation things that a person can do, things like exercise. 
This can be specific exercises like physical therapy for the particular area of pain. It could be general exercise. It can be yoga. It can be stretching. It can just be getting up and walking around or moving around a little bit, right? That can help alleviate pain because it takes the person to actively seek out, I'm going to do something active and positive to help alleviate my pain. The other main engagement is uh, mindfulness or some type of meditation. So they found that any type of mindful activities helps decrease pain. Um, We can start off with what's called guided meditation for pain. So they have these guided meditations that people can do that help them um, get outside of their their pain. So they kind of feel the pain is being lifted out of their body because they're doing the, the mental work to do so. It could even be what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is um, a type of psychotherapy counseling, which you know helps people to think differently, to see their pain differently, or see life differently, changes their mentality, changes how they're thinking behaviors. And they found these things to be the most effective, right? So if we combine, you know, the... Um, massage with some type of physical activity with some type of mindfulness, this is more effective than any type of pain medications. So what happens when I tell a patient that these are the things you want to do? Immediately they are afraid that I'm not going to write them their pain medications. They're immediately disbelieving that there's no way this is going to help my pain. And the only thing that's ever helped is narcotic pain medicines. They have no faith that there's any other way. And, you know, because we're, as doctors, we're really um, pressured to not write for these medications. So in not doing so, if I was uncompromising and not writing these medications and saying, no, these are the treatments you have to do, well, immediately the patient's going to write me a negative review and my managers would come and say, hey, what's going on? Why did this patient write you a negative review? So what I found is that really what I want to do is work with the patient, right? Find out what are their fears? What are, why do they have this aversion to trying these new ways of treating their pain? What is the, it's the fear is that it's not going to work. The fear is that it's going to increase their pain. And so really it's coming to helping them understand that, but what if it works? What, how much, better would your life be? How would your life be improved? There's a story one time about, this is not a personal patient of mine, but it's someone else that I was talking to, and they were telling me that, you know, one of their patients, older gentleman in a wheelchair, you know, he's so much pain from arthritis in his knees and hips, and, you know, and he was really feeling sad because all he wanted to do was dance at his granddaughter's wedding, right? And so his doctor started, okay, Let's picture yourself dancing at your granddaughter's wedding. How does that feel for you? How does that look? Okay, let's take this step. Let's get up out of the wheelchair and stretch and stand for a minute. Let's. And so because he had this picture in his mind of dancing in his granddaughter's wedding, he was willing to undergo some temporary suffering. You know, like it's a little painful to get up and start exercising when you haven't when you've been in so much pain. It at first increases your pain a little bit before it starts to alleviate it. 
it's uh, difficult to meditate. The mind wanders so much, it can also be very irritating almost to the body and the mind. So these things are very difficult to do. Sometimes when people are in so much pain, massage can be painful. But because he had this idea that my doctor said that I can dance at my granddaughter's wedding, I want to dance at my granddaughter's wedding, then he put faith in his doctor's instructions, and he started to follow them. And not only did he dance at his granddaughter's wedding, that same year he went and climbed you know, a, a mountain because that was something he's always wanted to do since he was younger. Not the Himalayas, but it was a smaller mountain. Um, and that, you know, he started climbing mountains. A guy who was in a wheelchair the year before because he started to set goals. Well, if we take the same kind of knowledge and application to our spiritual practice, our spiritual path, you know, why do we want to become Krishna conscious? Why do we want to realize our true nature? These are questions that we have to really focus on. That why? Because when it comes down to it, we've all chosen to be here. We've all chosen this as our path. So even though things are difficult, we have to realize that we chose this path. Doesn't mean we're, you know, we're stuck to it because we have to make that choice almost every single day. You have to make that choice that I, am I going to chant my rounds today? Right? Am I going to follow the four regular principles today? Am I going to honor prashadam today? Am I going to associate with devotees today? Am I going to honor the instructions of my spiritual master today? We have to make these decisions every single day. And what keeps us on track is the final goal, that final goal of Krishna. And, you know, um, getting out of pain and misery is a great uh, motivator initially. We can think of, you know, I pray because I want to relieve myself of this material suffering, this cycle of birth and death, old age, disease. There's so many problems in the material world, right? That's a a valid reason for wanting to engage in Krishna consciousness. But it's not going to keep us in Krishna consciousness. We found that pain is a great initial motivator. It's not a great maintainer of change. Maintainer of change is pleasure. So we have to actually get some pleasure. We have to start experiencing some of that bliss and knowing that that bliss is real. One of the things that I um, recommend and I do quite often is, and for health purposes, is a 10-day program. It's a 10-day immersion of, of creating good, healthy habits. Um, for 10 days, you make a commitment of, you know, you're going to get... Uh, good sleep, you're going to drink plenty of water, you're going to eat very healthy, you're going to avoid um, processed foods, sugar, foods that are not good for you, meditate. It's like this whole list of things that we want to be doing anyway. But you just make a commitment, I'm going to do it for 10 days. And then what we found is when people do it, and even I find this, is that, wow, you feel really good. You start to get this really positive experience of wow, living this way can really make a big difference in how I feel and my health. And what I found is that after the 10 days, I always pick up a habit, right? And so, like, one of the... I remember one of the big um, habits that I managed to pick up was not eating after 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening. 
And, you know, I try to maintain that habit. It came from a 10-day program, one of the times that I did it. So I try to maintain that. Sometimes it's other things like, you know, taking a moment out of each day, three times a day, to breathe, which I use to chant my Gayatri, right? So it's like um, consciously making these decisions and creating these habits. Do it for 10 days. You don't have to maintain all of it, but maybe pick up a habit or two to maintain. So if we took that same kind of program for our spiritual life and said, let's make a commitment of 10 days of just jumping all in, getting up early in the morning, going to Mangalarti, or having some type of program at home where you're chanting your rounds, um, saying some prayers, reading um, Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita for 15 minutes, coming to the temple every single day. It could be just for five minutes to take darshan. You know, and you can look and see what other good practices that you can incorporate. Do it for 10 days and see how you feel. You know, do that experiment and get that um, positive experience of really seeing that this is what spiritual life can be like. Then you have something to focus your mind on when it's, man, I don't want to get up out of bed and chant my rounds because I'm so tired and it's so cold outside. Um, but then you think, no, remember when I did how good I felt? Or remember how that connection, how it feels to be connected to Krishna? You have something to focus your mind to motivate you in that moment when you don't want to do it. And that's the, the secret behind goal setting. Goal setting is focusing on the end result and use, and taking that step-by-step approach to do so. So, you know, I challenge everybody to do a 10-day program and see what comes of it and I'd love to hear feedback on, on your um, experience. What questions do you have for me? None. Okay. Well, you know, I, I, I'm just looking at my notes, and I wanted to mention one last thing, that I was listening to a lecture by um, my um, spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami, and he was talking to his disciples in the Philippines, and they were talking about the balance between our own spiritual practice or sadhana and service at the temple. And according to what he, the, the discussion, it seemed like um, everybody was thriving in their sadhana at the expense of service. And, we, you know, the, the discussion was talking about how we can easily slip away back into being more materially minded if we compromise our sadhana for service because we don't have a community anymore. If the service to the temple, to each other slips, then we don't have that community support um, that's very important. At the same time, if our service compromises our sadhana, then we don't have that strong foundation that keeps us grounded in our devotional service. So we have to find this balance of service and our own spiritual practice. Um, and part of that is realizing that we have our, our own natural skills and talents, that, um, that there are some things that are challenging and there's some things that we're super easy at that I'm like, why is that so hard for you? It's so easy for me. And, you know, somebody can look at me and be like, why is cooking in the kitchen so hard for you? It's, it's not a big deal. Where it's like, to me, it's rocket science. Whereas, you know, 
brain surgery is probably easier than cooking in the kitchen. Um, so really, when we are engaged in devotional service, our spiritual master guides us to understand this balance of service and, and sadhana and knowing how to use our skills and talents that increases our service but also enlivens our sadhana, our spiritual practice. So our spiritual master is key um, for our spiritual progress and our connection to Krishna. We always have the choice to follow or not follow whatever our spiritual master guides us, whatever the scripture says. But if we want to achieve Krishna, we, we must follow the, the orders, the instructions. So on that, if there are no questions, I'll conclude today's Srimad Bhagavatam class. Sarantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki? Jai.